Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the March episode of The Backstory on Marketing. If you haven't already done so, please visit ProRelevant.com and sign up for all of these episodes and podcasts. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Post-COVID Marketing Machine, Prepare Your Team to Win. You can find more information on this at marketingmachine.prorelevant.com, marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. Today, we'll be speaking with Bill Franks. He's the director of the Center for Statistics and Analytical Research at Kennesaw State University. Bill is also the author of the new book, Winning the Room, uh, and as well as uh, Taming the Big Data Tidal Wave, The Analytics Revolution, and 97 Things About Ethics Everyone in Data Sciences Should Know. His work has spanned clients in a variety of industries uh, for companies ranging in size from Fortune 100 to small nonprofit organizations. You can learn more at bill-franks.com, bill-franks.com. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. Yeah, glad to have you here. Uh, so uh, you're at KSU. Let's uh, talk a little bit about KSU. I've always been impressed with, uh, with what they're doing there. And uh, so tell us a little bit about that before we get started. Yeah, KSU, it's a part of the University System of Georgia, um, probably obviously not as well known outside the Atlanta area as would be University of Georgia or Georgia Tech, uh, but it's it's rapidly growing. We're up over 40,000 students now. We've got a, a you know full range of degrees. We're adding uh, more PhD programs uh, each year, it seems. So I think uh, over the coming years, more and more people are going to hear about, uh, about KSU. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think you know, certainly Georgia Tech uh, and the uh, University of Georgia, but uh, Georgia State and the whole Georgia University system is really, really taken off. And, and KSU, I think, is a big piece of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about uh, data sciences. Uh, that's kind of what uh, your and my fields are uh, with some overlap on the marketing side. So, so data sciences seems to be growing faster than the data science talent, and uh, which leads to a lot of open positions. So what do you see uh, as uh, how KSU fits in with closing that talent gap? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I think that the interesting thing to me is that the talent gap is so big, I don't even think universities all combined are necessarily yet cranking out enough new talent to, to really fill all of that. I think we have we have work to do as a, as a society to encourage more people to get into these fields. But uh, I think one of the things that we're doing specifically here is we're really focused on having some very applied programs. So even with our PhD program, we, we look to get each student at least a couple of years working with a corporate client. That's actually the role that the center that I oversee that you mentioned beginning, the Center for Statistics and Analytical Research. It partners with big corporations and they fund projects that we do joint research with them on. So we do projects with companies like, you know, Travelers Insurance and Home Depot, Georgia Pacific, and these are real problems. So we're really trying to get our students versed in what's actually happening with data and data science in a business environment. Um, and particularly, and as we get onto the master's level and so forth, we have capstone courses, we support a variety of internships and so forth. So we're, we're trying to put out students that, have a knowledge of how to apply what they're learning rather than just the theory. And to me, that's part of the gap we've had historically is too many, too many programs historically put out people who were technically highly proficient, but, and, and I'll put myself in this bucket. When I came out of school, I was very technically proficient. I didn't have any real 
practical experience in how to apply any of that in a real world setting. And I had to learn that all on my own, which of course is time and money for the company that does the, hires you initially uh, to get you up to speed. So I think that the more that, that universities uh, can and have started to do like KSU and focus on not just the academic components of, of a degree in, in, in a STEM field, but the applied nature of that, I think it's, uh, it's gonna be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been working with the uh, Emory consulting team in, in uh, well, business consulting, but usually I get paired up with the marketing side of things. And, uh, and I think it makes a huge difference. And you can just tell that those students that have had that practical background um, and have seen then the real business problem and how the true data sets work and uh, what the challenges are in the real world, that makes a huge difference. And, and if you're a hiring manager, that's really what you want to look for is you want to look for somebody that's, that has some kind of an understanding of what the, the real challenges are going to be in, in terms of being able to actually apply those technical skills that they've learned. Well, I can tell you, I, you know, I'm personally overseeing one of the corporate projects with some master's students, and I was literally on the, the status call with that client right before I joined you today. And, you know, they, they wanted us to change direction on one thing and do something slightly different. So, you know, I'm having the conversation with the students. You realize pretty much all that the code you've been building to create these variables is still fine. You have to do it as of a different date, right? They no longer care about when the person initially registered. They care about when they initially bought. All of your logic's the same with the exception that you have to identify what did the customer look like at a different point in time. You know, I make the point that this is a common thing. And you know this in marketing, right? The as of date is something that, I mean, you do it again and again and again, and it's ubiquitous in any, in, in, in any analytic and in, in a lot of different application areas. But it, it, again, it's not something that necessarily gets taught per se, right? It's, it, for, for the students, it was new. Oh, doesn't this change everything? Well, no. You're just going to grab a customer record from a different point in time, and and it's really easy to identify the proper record based on when it you know when what the dates related to it are. Um, but at the same time, while it's very easy to make that change, if you don't make that change, you jeopardize all of the analytics because you have the totally wrong view of what that customer looked like. So these are the little practical things that I think it's um, honestly, without getting your hands dirty with a real project, it's almost hard to. You know, you can't really laundry list every little thing that you ever need to know. Uh, a lot of it you're going to learn, but the more that you can get students to see these things uh, uh, while they're in school, the easier it'll be for them to extend those uh, when they get their, you know, their real job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges, and uh, we're on the marketing analytics side, so kind of a, a subset of what you guys are, what your folks are doing, but uh, the hardest challenge is really specifying what that business question is that you're trying to answer. And then really understanding that as you peel the layers back to say, okay, well, this is the business question, but, you know, is it this field, so to speak, uh, you know, to your, to your point, or is it some other field? And then working through each of those things as you really kick off that project. And, and uh, you know, and the problem is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you are using the, the wrong data set uh, totally, then, then what you're doing is worthless. If you're off a little bit, then you're not really providing that little bit of extra value to that business question that can really make the, the value overall to the company uh, really shine. Yeah, I, you know, and it's little things like, uh, back to your point of the definition, why it's so critical. I had a, a recent scenario where, you know, you would, uh, people would register with this company's website. Now, register sounds pretty simple. There's a registration date. Okay, great. Any analysis about registration, we go off the registration date. 
um, in deeper conversation with the business, it ends up that there's different types of registration that aren't necessarily flagged as a type, but you know, they work with corporate partners. So some corporate partners will quote automatically register everybody at a soft register, just give the name and the, the, the basic contact so that all someone has to do is, is define a password. But they'd still have that registration data as then. So you get into, okay, well, when you care about when someone registered, what exactly do you mean now? Is it when they showed up in the system, including if their company just did the soft registration, or is it when they actually came and personally typed in information and confirmed that they wanted to make use of that registration? And again, there's not a right or wrong answer here necessarily, but depending on the question, you know, the question that they want to answer, it could make it a huge difference in the, the actual analytics that, that we would do. Um, and so that was one I thought was an interesting because it sounds so easy. Oh, there's registration rate. We're good to go. Well, no, you, al you always have to dig in. Does it mean what we're assuming it means? And in this case, the answer was no, not always. It does not always mean what you assume it means. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of gets into maybe a little bit of the, uh, the next question here is uh, so uh, the question is, are the roles that support data science efforts changing? And it almost seems like what, there's there's two separate roles that we just talked about. One is defining the business question, and then there has to be somebody that peels the layers of the onions back to make sure that we get to the the true uh, root question that we're really trying to answer. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I've, I mean, I've got like the entire keynote on this topic and written a bunch about it as well. What's interesting is if you go back to when I first got into the analytics business, and I think yourself as well. You know, in the old days, I mean, it, there was one person. I would do have to do everything. I had to get the data. I had to prepare the data. I had to model the data. I had to work with the business folks on the front end, on the back end, and all of that. Um, now, granted, a lot of what we were doing wasn't nearly as sophisticated, automated, et cetera, um, but that's how, how it was done. And what's happening uh, in recent years now, because analytics has become not just more ubiquitous, but uh, it, it's becoming more embedded in, in operational processes and, and it's getting scaled, that role is getting split. You now have people loosely called translators who focus almost exclusively on these conversations we just talked about on the front end. Well, what exactly do you mean and what do you need to solve? And making sure they understand that from the business side and then translating that to requirements for the technical coders. And on the back end, those same people would help uh, position the results to the, to the client. But now you have, you hear about data engineering as a thing, right? Well, Data's gotten so messy these days with all the different formats and all the different locations. Now, in many cases, you have a whole discipline around just getting that data together so that someone can model it. On top of that, because of the deployment being so much more scaled, you now have people, these ops roles, ML ops, you know, for machine learning ops or AI ops. Uh, there's DevOps in general in software where these are roles that are really systems people with a focus on analytics who are doing classic system optimization. How do we get the processing capacity allocated properly? How do we make sure the data is going through the, the network properly? You know, very technical deep network stuff, but focused exclusively on the analytical type processing. Um, so there's this a variety of roles now where as you look uh, across time in an analytical process, the steps were, were um, you know, specializing uh, within each of those uh, phases and sometimes even within a phase. So within data science itself, there's no, you know, there are still generalist data scientists and we still need them. I, I liken that to a um, general practitioner doctor. They, they can do the triage and figure out the general direction. But now you've got people specializing in nothing but language processing, nothing but image recognition, nothing but, you know, classic risk analytics in a banking context. And, and it's because they've become so complicated and, and so sophisticated, each of those areas that you can't just dabble in it anymore. If you're gonna be effective and you're gonna 
deliver the quality that's required, you've got to be a specialist, much like doctors have. So I think it's both across and within these disciplines, there's just a lot of specialization these days, which back to the talent crunch. So now, you know, we need everybody that we used to need, plus a bunch more in each of those roles. So yeah, no, absolutely. And I was on a call uh, with a friend of mine and what they do is uh, we, we specialize kind of in the mass media and the online media space, and they're specializing more or less in the, kind of the CRM and the sales space. Both of them have uh, overlapping components, but there's certainly a, a difference in the, uh, in the analog, an, analytics knowledge that you need in order to be able to really, really get that last extra little percent out of the, uh, out of the models and, uh, and, out of, and then really being able to answer those business questions. And uh, so I think you're right. When you said, you know, you've got, uh, you know, for each kind of a role, you have sub roles that, that have to deal with different pieces of it. I think that's absolutely right. And you hit on something really important about the different skill levels as well. I mean, this is the, the, the core theme of my, of my book, The Analytics Revolution, was about this embedding and automating of analytics in operational context where, you know, think about a website making millions and millions of decisions a day in milliseconds of what, you know, what are the products it's going to try and cross sell you. In those kind of scenarios, you know, you can't afford to have really expensive people spending a whole lot of time on each individual model. You have what I, call, I kind of call commodity models. You need an automated process that'll build a pretty decent model pretty quickly where there's some automated checks and if it passes them, it just goes live, right? And, and there's people monitoring the overall pool of these and looking for any that are going to miss to, to, to yank them out potentially. But you can't, uh, you can't be building bespoke, super uh, fancy models for every possible application. High value ones, absolutely. But marketing is an example where a lot of things just have to be automated. And you could make the argument, well, you know, we could get another another, you know, relative percent or two lift out of this if we really put some data scientists on it for a few months. Well, true. But you've got 200 of these models. And to put those data scientists on that for those months on each of those is going to end up being time and cost uh, prohibitive. And, and it's just not practical. So embrace what you're capturing with your somewhat automated models as long as they're working well and take down, you know, the 10 of the 11% theoretical max that you're actually able, able to get. And I think that's been a mind, a mind shift, both within the business community and the data science community. Early in my career, I would have had a heart attack at the thought of I'm leaving one out of 11% on the table. Now I'm like, look, if we can take down 10% in a, in a matter of a couple of weeks and move on to another problem to get the first 10%, that's actually a lot more value then spending the extra month to get the extra 1% on the first problem. And so that's back to the scale. The scale changes the equation. When there's only five problems to focus on, you're going to take them all down to the, to the ultimate uh, level of detail. But we no longer have it. Now we have dozens or hundreds or thousands, depending on the size of the company. And you've got to get in, get a good value, and, and move on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, that uh, we call that the minimum viable product, so to speak. And, uh, you know, and if you can get 80% of the value out of, uh, you know, let's say, you know, a handful of weeks work versus a handful of months or a handful of years, you're much better doing that. And then just like you said, move on to the next big one and then, you know, capture all the big ones and then you can reprioritize and go to the next level. The other challenge I have is, as well as, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it was five years ago, maybe longer, really before data analytics and data sciences kind of took off, you'd have these spreadsheets and, you know, you'd build a spreadsheet and then you'd add a little bit, you'd add a little bit. 
And all of a sudden that spreadsheet is a monster and it has so much in it that it absolutely has errors in it that you will never find. And so if you were even to build some very complex uh, data analytics solution, you don't know if you have an error in it because you, you know, it gets so big that you might actually, you know, you're, you're still adding value, but you may actually be doing uh, some things wrong in certain areas because it's just too big to see and have a, you know, a good view of actually how all of the thing puts to get, it comes together to really solve then, you know, the, the business challenges that it's trying to solve. So, you know, what's interesting, that's a, a great comment. And, you know, I find a lot of people get hung up on that. Oh my gosh, you know, we made an error in this decision here and that decision there. And that's the whole point of statistics and probability. It's about odds, right? It's a casino business, right? At the end of the day, when I build a model, no matter how good it is, uh, what we're saying is we think we, on average, can can make the correct prediction as to say who will buy, um, you know, seventy percent of the time, whatever it is. But what that means is thirty percent of the time we're wrong, and we could be wrong because someone just changed their behavior unexpectedly. It could have been a data error. Could have been our model wasn't capturing something that it should have captured. But it doesn't matter. The point is, on average are you capturing uh, about 70% of those who respond? And if so, you know, that's phenomenal, but you can't let the exceptions, you know, I would say you can't let the exceptions drive the rules. And, you know, a real world example that I use to hammer this idea home is, you know, we should be looking at on average, does this model work better than not having the model? And, and as long as it's not doing anything harmful, on, you know, on the mistakes it's making, it's a good thing. So autonomous vehicles are out there and we still are in this world now where anytime an autonomous vehicle hits or kills a, a person anywhere in the world, it makes international headlines and everyone calls for either completely stopping autonomous vehicle creation or, or regulating it further and further. And my point is, that's the wrong way to look at it. You got to look at for every 100,000 miles driven, what's the, what's the accident and death rate of autonomous vehicles and people? As long as the cars are worse, obviously, then we want to be very cautious. But we're going to get to a day where the autonomous vehicles are, say, one-tenth, one-twentieth of people. But that doesn't mean they'll be air-free. There will still be cases where an autonomous vehicle will wreck where most reasonable people wouldn't because of unusual lighting or whatever the case is. You have to look at that trade-off of, well, that's unfortunate this accident happened here, and we know how to get the autonomous code to work better. But we're saving you know, 10 accidents per 100,000 miles driven over people who would have made these other accidents happen that the car wouldn't have. The problem is you never see the examples that didn't happen because someone wasn't driving the car. But it, it applies very much here in analytics in the, in the modeling as well. You, you could always go find those cases where somebody got the wrong offer or was given the wrong diagnosis, prediction, et cetera, et cetera. But on average, overall, are you much better than you were before you had any of the models at all? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, my brother just sent me a video of a, uh, a Tesla was in an accident and the battery exploded and there were pieces oh. of the car all over the place. And, uh, and I, I responded back, yeah, but don't gas tanks explode. And so, you know, nice one. It's, a, it's exactly the same thing. You know, here you have something that, you know, okay, so batteries, uh, you know, are, are saving energy or more eco-friendly or whatever. And, and, and yet, you know, that one case makes the news Whereas all of the other cases don't make the news. I've done, uh, we did some consulting for loss prevention. And one of the challenges with, uh, with loss prevention is you can't prove how much loss you prevented because it didn't happen. 
And, uh, you know, and so to your point as well is that how many accidents don't happen because you have all this automation in the car or the automated driver or whatever it is. And yes, absolutely. There's going to be one or two failures where the, the light, like you said, the lighting isn't right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. So, well, it's funny when people are uncomfortable with this conversation we're having, I always point out that while it's, it's a dirty secret, it's how all public policy is built. So for example, car mandates for airbags, we didn't used to have to have airbags because they were way too expensive initially. And they effectively, that both the government and manufacturers of all types effectively do a you know, life saved or injuries saved per dollar of cost. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it's too high a dollar per cost. And, and even the federal government, like, yep, no, nope, we're not gonna mandate that because it's too costly per life saved. But they know that 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 there would have been lives saved if the airbags had been there. So you have to have you have to have some of that rational trade off, and it it is uncomfortable. But at some point, I mean, if we wanted a car that would never wreck, we'd all be driving five miles an hour in a tank, and and paying you know and having to fill our fill our tanks with hundred gallons of gas every hundred miles. But nobody nobody would want that, even though objectively it's far safer, right? And so you 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 accept that risk. Well, I'm going to go on the interstate. It's convenient to go seventy miles an hour to get home, but at the same time, if I get in a wreck at 70 miles an hour, I'm in, I'm in deep trouble. It's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, you know, there's a big uh, risk point there. And so I think that's with the models and all that. It, it goes on behind the scenes in our lives a lot more, I think, than many people think about it. And people don't, don't, don't realize. I mean, when you buy life insurance, you're basically, it's a bet. You're betting you're going to die so that you make money on it. And the company's <laughs> betting that you won't so they can keep your money. But it's literally that computation. Your rates are set on the probability they think that you'll die before that policy expires. And when you buy it, you know, in effect, you're you're betting on your death because the only time the insurance pay, psychologically, of course, in yep. estate planning, it's yep. it's a safety net. But I'm saying from a money and math perspective, you win if you die to collect more than the premiums that you put in. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what. Uh, uh, COVID uh, is a prime example of, uh, you know, how do you get to perfect so that there's no spread of the disease with with masks or no mask, vaccine mandate or no mandate? And, and it's kind of a, a very similar trade-off. In some things, uh, you know, you can never get, a, get to 100% perfect, and that's where then uh, public policy comes in. Yeah. So, uh, but speaking of public policy, then uh, let's switch over to uh, data privacy, because data privacy is now uh, becoming part of uh, public policy. And certainly with the GDPR and the CCPA and in California and what have you, uh, the, uh, the the value of your of your personal data is uh, is now coming into the public policy uh, domain. And uh, so it, when you think about that, and especially now as we move to the Web 3.0 and Metaverse and, and what have you, uh, there's a lot of ethical issues and that marketers and data scientists need to consider. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's a big issue. And you, know, you mentioned beginning the, the, the book, 97 Things About Ethics, Everyone in Data Science Should Know, fo focus on this. It was actually a compilation of blog link submissions from um, as the title would suggest, 97 different uh, submitters on, on various aspects of it. And, and the reality is, you know, I still, I've been in this business for a long time. And I, I like to say, I've become somewhat of a privacy freak, mainly because uh, honestly, of what I do, it's like, I'm on the inside seeing what's happening. And it's not always what's happening, but what could happen that bothers me more, right? I'll see the data a company has, and I'll know at the time they're not doing something I'm uncomfortable with but I also can identify 10 things they could do with that data that I'd be incredibly uncomfortable with. And the only thing 
stopping them from doing it is their own sense of, well, this would be illegal, unethical, or otherwise get us in, in trouble with the media. And then there's companies that push those limits all the time. So I think this is a, a topic that's going to be evergreen for a while. I mean, when you, when you look today in the marketing space and the talk about getting rid of cookies, well, you know, people on the one hand are cheering that this is great. Now these cookies, they can't track me the same way. Uh, but, you know, they've postponed that once or twice because they're getting their workarounds. And you hear about, you know, browser fingerprinting, which is, you know, a way, as I understand it, you know, this might not be perfect, but your browser itself reports information when you request a web page. It'll tell the browser version. It'll say what add-ins you have, et cetera, et cetera. They might know uh, things about your IP address. The point is there's ways to almost uniquely identify people just based on the web requests that they put in. That isn't, isn't unique because there's a cookie now. It's even worse. It's your computer and browser combination is uniquely stamping you in a way that can be identified. I don't think most people realize that that's possible. Um, and, and, and the laws and the, and the policies around what's fair and unfair with, with the browser fingerprinting, I don't think are fully developed yet either. So everywhere we go, we're going to keep having this. And you mentioned you know, things like this new, this whole idea of metaverse now. You know, it's one thing when everything that you type or click is getting tracked, but now you get into a metaverse concept and, and let's say you're literally having a 3D avatar interaction with somebody and, you know, I, I jokingly slap you in the 3D world. Now, is that, is that count the same as if I slapped you in the real world, right? Am I going to get in, am I going to get in trouble for this? Am I now violent? Am I now a you know, a, a person to, of suspicion because I slapped your avatar with my avatar. I mean, I don't know. But the point is that it, that data is going to be captured. And much like people getting in trouble now for things that were harmless 10 years ago and getting in big trouble because it surfaces that they had done or said something that was perfectly acceptable at the time, but now isn't. Maybe today it's a big joke. Let's all go in and start slapping each other's avatars. And 10 years from now, that's considered equally bad as an assault. And I'll go back and go, well, look at Bill. He, he was slapping and assaulting people in the metaverse in the early days, left and right, and, and get canceled. So, you know, what is the policy on that? What, what, what data should be captured and, and how long should it be kept? I, I, I mean, it's just, it's a never ending question. So I guess to answer your question, I'm concerned about the lack, still about the lack of general focus by the average person on this. I think most people just blow, they would say, oh, you guys are just old curmudgeons. What do we care? Who cares if they have my data? I'm not doing anything wrong. And, you know, yet you hear about, you know, college recruits losing a scholarship in a division one thing because of one thing they said one time on social media that might not have even meant what it read as if it was in context. And so I say, you know, it, it's all fun and games until you're the person who gets burnt because your data has been captured and utilized in ways you didn't want it to. So I'd rather have the transparency, at least make sure I know how it's doing, at least make people acknowledge what's being done. And if you choose to turn over all your data willingly, okay, that's your choice. I just want it to be transparent where people are being uh, made aware of exactly, and in plain English, not these 80 page documents in plain English, here's what we're going to collect and do with your data. Yeah, and that is uh, that's very difficult. And uh, to your point as well, I the problem with public policy or you know regulation or whatever is that okay. So now you know the metaverse is kind of starting to take off. It's been around a while with Second Life and a couple of other ones, but now it seems like it you know might actually be taken off. And uh, the problem that public policy has to even 
regulate it in some fashion is that they're always going to be five or 10 years behind. By the time they finally figure out that there's a policy that needs to be, be in place, like no slapping on your first date or something like that, then um, it, you know the metaverse has already moved on and then there's some other kind of a verse out there. So uh, uh, you know it, it, it's, it's very challenging. But I did like your breakdown. You know, there's, there's things that are legal or criminal illegal or criminal, then there's things that are ethical or not ethical, and then there's things that the media might get hold of. I kind of like that breakdown because that is exactly where companies and their data and their policies and their internal actions really have to take, you know, really have to play. And, you know, the biggest one that I can think of is the Volkswagen diesel gate, where they were manipulating the engines during the, uh, you know, the EPA tests to pass so you'd get a good pass, and then once that was done, they'd go back and and then you know and, and then run the motor differently, and and you know clearly unethical, certainly bad for uh, for the media. I don't know if it was illegal; probably was illegal. But you know those things, uh, that culture within the organization is what drives that use of the of the data, and in this case, then the use of uh, you know that algorithm that's built into the the computer that's controlling the the diesel engine. Now, on that hierarchy, I always say in an ideal world, all three of those would be lined up perfectly. Hmm. But what's legal is probably the loosest, because to your point, things just haven't caught up, right? There are things that are that, that are not illegal today, not because 90% of people wouldn't say that should be illegal, it just hasn't yet been recognized as a possibility to be made legal. Then what's ethical, I think, is, is tighter than what's legal, certainly. Um, but even what's ethical, you know, one of the things I talk about ethics all the time is it's not as cut and dried as you think. So even something that you're convinced is ethical, there's nothing that 100% of people are going to agree is ethical. And so depending, you do something that seems perfectly ethical and that m- the majority of people might agree is ethical. But if a third of your customers think it was totally unethical and they're the ones running to the papers and yeah. doing the boycotts, yeah. you're going to feel some pain. And so you've got to really think about all three of those. And that's where the, I think the, we sit today for the most part. It's the culture and the individuals and the company policies that guide this. And there are companies I, I tend to trust, and there are some large tech companies I don't trust as far as I can see, who I who I you know I believe skirt up to and maybe over the the ethical and legal lines on a regular basis wherever they can. That that, that that's that's good for them, and that you know that's life. But I back to it. I would I, I wish people would be more aware. And and frankly, I remember a shocking statistic I saw was. For all the data you give, let's say, I think it was Facebook was this example. For all the data you're giving them to get the free service, the amount of ad revenue they made off the average person, it was either per month or per year, was like 5 or $6, something like that. Um, probably per year, given how big the revenue are. The point is, I would happily pay $5 a month to have a, a some of the services I have that are free if they'd be kept completely private. So it's one thing if, they, if someone said, well, to get all your benefits of Facebook, it's going to cost you $3,000 a year. A lot of people might say, well... I'm not going to pay 3000 and I guess I'll just have to give up my data. But you tell people, well, you might pay around $50, $80, $100 a year, and then Facebook won't have collect or use any of that data. I think a lot of people go, oh, well, geez, yeah, if I'm giving up all that and, and it only costs me that much, I'll do it. Um, and, and, you know, that's an alternative revenue model. What is uh, Honestly, I don't see why Facebook would care if I'm going to pay them their same $80 they'd make off me otherwise um, to keep my data private. Um, it, that, that, that should be a small, I'd love to see some companies actually go down that path. Yeah. And I like your, uh, the way you're, uh, you know, 
connecting the privacy issue with what the value of that is to the individual. And that, that I think is kind of a way to look at a lot of these privacy rules and say, yeah, I'd pay, I'd pay $5 or no, you know, I don't care if they take my data. And I hate to say it, um, my wife hates it when I do this, but I'm a marketer. And so I leave my cookies on and I leave a lot of stuff on and because I want to see how the marketers use it. And so we just uh, bought a new car. And uh, so we were going out to the sites, Hyundai and Kia and Toyota and Ford. And uh, it was fascinating to see how quickly the manufacturers then took advantage of that and started showing us ads on our smart TV. And it was Hyundai that was the winner. GM was a little bit behind, uh, but they were never a little less, less there. Kia, Ford, and I can't remember who else we looked at, didn't do anything. But uh, Hyundai, within a day, within 24 hours, were using my information and starting to show me ads based on the, the websites that we had visited. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so fascinating. It kind of also uh, kind of leads into the next uh, question here, because one of the challenges that you'd also have, and there some data sets uh, are siloed because of the regulations around them. And, um, and I remember going to a, a presentation, uh, uh, oh, this is maybe 10 years ago, and he was the, the chief data officer, I think for the state of Georgia. Um, and he said, well, you know, what might be available to you in this data source is not available to you from that data source. So you'd have the Department of Labor would say, no, 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 you can't have that data. And one of the other departments would say, yeah, you can have this data. And in particular, then uh, you had them the crossovers where you had especially corrections officers. You didn't want that data to get out in any one of the databases. So you had a database over here, let's say it was the Department of Labor. They had to have a flag on that data that said, nope, you can't allow any corrections officers data to get uh, you know, sold or given out to the public for whatever reason. And uh, you know, just kind of fascinating. And that then leads though kind of to not only data silos for regulatory purposes, uh, but also data silos for managerial or power or political purposes within an organization. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about how you see that happening and how you know, maybe data sciences can break those silos down, maybe can't break them down, or maybe can break them down in, in maybe some kind of a white room or, or whatever. You know, this is one of these things where I think most people would agree that in an ideal world, you just have all your data together, right? And I think we'd all start with that premise. But then there's always the reasons why you have to break that. And you just raise you, right? Oh, well, we have to have it all together, except here's this piece that for law reason, we can't have it together. Now you just created a silo, albeit for a good reason. Well, you know, we've got to give this data to our partner over here, but they're not allowed to access our actual system nor can they see some of the data. So we need to make an extract of the data that's just the data they can see and then put it over in this other spot where they have access to and so forth. And so I think the reality is, the reality unfortunately is that there's a lot of valid reasons why you end up with silos, unfortunately, more than you like, but then people pile on invalid reasons just because, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm annoyed that you're not getting me data fast enough. I'm gonna create my own database over here and pull all the data for my own purpose. That's not necessarily a good, you know, good reason. But it's going to be there. In fact, it's funny. My blog last month was about, you know, a, a you know barrier to to scalable analytics. It's the same one that's been around for a long time. When you have data in different places, if you need to analyze that data jointly, you have to bring that data together physically at the time of analysis. And if they're small files, Excel spreadsheets, who cares, right? It doesn't matter. But if you've got terabytes over here and terabytes over there, 
even today, that's still an, an, an expensive and or time consuming process, right? So even on a public cloud, yeah, you can pay for a, a huge amount of capacity to suck that data over as fast as possible, but you're going to pay a really big price for that much capacity. Or you can pay for a more typical reasonable amount of capacity, and it's going to take a really long time and still run up a pretty big bill. So I think that the challenge is to be aware of that you'll have to have some silos and then just be very diligent in trying to keep them to the absolute minimum. And to the extent that there's huge, large uh, data repositories that are going to be joined together frequently, you're going to, you know, as much as you can get them as close together, if not in the same, uh, you know, overall platform as possible. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and I think you're right. Their data silos are going to be there. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you can, if you get full access to it, or you can do a full join to it, or maybe you need anonymized access, or maybe you get anonymized access, but you can get a couple of fields with real detail. Uh, I think that that's one of the, and maybe that gets back to the uh, the new roles for data scientists. One of those roles for data sciences is, is that data governance piece to be able to make sure that the data is properly, legally, ethically, and media, I guess, being used so that uh, it's not being abused or misused in some fashion. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a big, a lot of big companies spending a lot of time on the on the governance and oversight of the data itself and its uses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so now I have a future question for you. Uh, when I was growing up, and I don't know about you, but my first programming language was basic. And then I moved to Fortran, and then it moved into uh, Pascal, I think. And then it was, uh, then, you know, there were a handful of other ones. And then there was C and C and C and C sharp. And then all of a sudden, programming moved into things like R, now for especially for analytics, and, uh, and Python. And so it, it seems like Python has now supplanted R. So what do you see as kind of the future of, of these languages for, uh, for analysts? Well, it's interesting. So I guess I'd be a hesitant to project because there there could be language uh, ten out there that that you didn't mention that's suddenly going to take the world by storm. I mean, even even not too many years ago, it looked like R was going to conquer it, and then Python kind of came out of nowhere, at least in the analytics space. But I'll tell you, in my mind, it doesn't matter so much from this. This is what I tell I tell this to. I mean, students in particular, I talk about this a lot. But even professionals will come and go. All right, Bill, you know, what language should I know? Right. If I if I want to get out there and get the best job, should I know R? Should I know SQL? Should I know Python? What should I know? And I always say, you know what? What you need to know is know how to program. You need to know the logic and how to develop, how to first define analytic logic and translate it into code and do it well. And I said, if you know one language really well and you can show me you can translate complicated analytical logic in that language, I have utter confidence because, like you just mentioned, you and I have translated multiple languages over the years. You can, you can transfer that, much like speaking English. If I wanted to learn French, it's painful, but I know exactly what I need to say. I just have to figure out how do I say it in French. That's different than when you were a baby and you had to learn what language was and what a word was and what a sentence is. And when you first learn coding, it's a little bit like that. You have to learn the entire concept of coding. Incredibly, incredibly difficult at first. But once you know how to code and you know one coding language, to it's just a matter of translation. So I always tell people, Instead of trying to, to get a little certificate in seven languages to claim you know them, but you know them about that deep, show that you really know how to code well. Mm -hmm. If you know how to code well, and I'm using a language in my company that's not the one that you know, 
I know that within a couple of months, you'll, you'll pick it up in particular because your peers will already know that language and be able to help tutor you along. You're not going to be on your own. So to me, it's, it's really about the underlying logic in the code. It's not even about the coding language. Yeah, no, fair enough. And actually, um, you know, good point. I don't know when I was, uh, in my programming classes, I think they were trying to teach us kind of the principles of coding. Uh, and you know, so you'd kind of get that structure. And, you know, I'm wondering if that's kind of the same thing now as, you know, you need to go deep in at least one. So maybe it's R, maybe it's Python, uh, but then you also need to kind of understand the overall theory because at some point Python is going to be supplanted by something else, whatever that is. And you're going to have to be able to translate your thinking and your methodology from, oh, you know, I used to do it this way in Python, but now I need to do it slightly differently, hopefully better in some new language. Yeah, and 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 you know you you hit on it too. It's uh, I remember I learned basic first as well. I taught myself basic initially, um, and, yeah, and I don't uh, feel so old. <laughs> yeah, well, and the, but the thing is, if you look at it, if you go back and look at old basic code, to be honest with you, a lot of the the constructs are still present in all these languages today. There's if and thens. There's you know yep. there's yep. loops. I mean, is it a do loop, a while loop, or a for loop? You know, I don't know. It depends on the language, but what do they all do? They're all going to churn through from one to 10, right? So, um, yeah, I think it's a, a to me that I, I like your idea of even the foundation of coding. When I like students on the projects uh, in the project class, I, teach, I tell them, I say, before you start coding, if you just go and start coding, you're going to screw it all up. I promise you, before you start coding, and there's sometimes teams where different people on the team know different languages, even, right? I said, do I call pseudocode? Map it out on the on the chalkboard. What do you got to get to? And then you can split up who's going to do what piece. Let them use whatever language. But you want to write down that logic and be convinced you have the logic laid out before you code. Because once you start coding, now you're locked into trying to fit it within what you know in that language, and you're going to end up doing things maybe you that that weren't optimal for the problem. Back to the very first point for the business problem, it's not optimal, but it's how you know how to code in your specific coding environment, so you do it. That's not optimal. Lay out what you need and then figure out a way to do it. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, and so, so true, so true. That definition of that business question at the top and really peeling back the layers on that. And then and from a coding perspective is really outlining what your code, you know, the big blocks of your code are going to do. And then, you know, and then then going off and, 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 and doing the code makes uh, makes so much sense. The thing I hated about coding was those uh, those off by one errors. <laughs> I was always I always had that in there. I never could get around them. Uh, but anyway, we're about out of time. Um, is there uh, one other thing that you'd like to talk about, or maybe you know what is the future of data sciences? And uh, then we'll uh, close up. Well, I'll finish. I I, I got to do a completely shameless plug, guy. I'll just pull up. Uh, just this week, my new newest book came out. Uh, you mentioned the beginning, winning the room, creating and delivering an effective data-driven presentation. And what this is all about is. Um, you know, over the years, I learned a lot of hard lessons myself, but probably some of the most painful meetings I've ever been in have been technical people presenting data to typically non-technical audiences, sometimes even other technical audiences. And it goes horribly wrong because they, they can't uh, put it in terms people understand. They're overcomplicating it. It's too detailed, all of these things. And so I tried to distill this down. The book, it's, it's a little different. Um, there's books on storytelling. There's books on analytics. There's books on visualization. This book is about a live presentation. Imagine you're in front of a room putting up a PowerPoint. What do you have to do to make that be successful? So there's elements of storytelling, elements of, of, of um, 
visualization and such, but it's really focused on that. How do you distill it down to a live presentation to a often non-technical audience? And to me, um, as we continue to have all of these analytics, it's still as much, almost as much as a problem as ever before. And you know, I, I, I was on a call earlier this week um, with a company I'm advising wherein their client was concerned that this model they had been delivered wasn't what they needed, they couldn't understand it, and, and they weren't able to work with the data scientist involved to have that person help them understand it. Um, you know, age old problem. And so the net result is maybe the model was perfect and maybe it was horrible, but it doesn't matter if the client's not even understanding it and it can't be explained. And so I think that's where this, 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 this book was, uh, was built out of, out of, as I started teaching here at the university, realizing often because they hadn't had any lessons is how bad the students' initial presentations were often, but then how fast they improved with some coaching. And I said, yeah, I got to put, I got to put some of this in a book. Um, and it's uh, 119 tips, just a minute or two each. 140 illustrations. A lot of the tips have illustrations to kind of show here's right, here's wrong. Very easy to digest, but I think, uh, you know, I think people will get it because as we move forward into the future, it's going to be as important as ever to be able to communicate these, these analytics and these data-driven um, uh, decisions yeah. and so forth yeah. effectively. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it. Uh, and uh, so tell us, where can we buy it? I think Everywhere where books are sold, it's I know it's up on Amazon, it's up on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the Wiley site directly. So um, should uh, should uh, at least online, it should be available. Bookstores, I don't know. I, I you know bookstores have their own method of choosing what yeah. books make it in. I'm sure you could order it at uh, online at any bookstore, even if they didn't have it in stock in the local store. All right. So uh, uh, why don't you show that again? It's called Winning the Room, um, and what's the uh, the subtitle? Creating and delivering an effective data-driven presentation. Fantastic, and I, you know, I, I've done data presentations all the time, and I do them now. And you know, and sometimes you run out of time, and and you just make small mistakes. And so, definitely looking forward to that, so I can mitigate, <laughs> remove some <laughs> of the mistakes that I made. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, Bill, thank you uh, so much. Been awesome. The conversation we we could keep on going, I guess, yeah. for another hour. But uh, really appreciate you participating, and uh, really appreciate uh, you know your perspectives on data sciences and where things are, are going to be going, and and the, certainly the challenges that we've we've got today. Uh, definitely, please uh, uh, go out to uh, uh, on Amazon or otherwise to purchase Winning the Room, uh, Bill's new book. I'm sure it'll be great. You can also reach out to Bill at bill-franks.com, bill-franks.com, and I'm sure you'll probably, uh, you'll be able to find more information there. Otherwise, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on marketing, and please visit marketingmachine.prorelevant.com slash getting started, a mouthful, marketingmachine.prorelevant.com slash getting started, and you will also be able to download the first chapter of my book and other valuable excerpts. Thank you so much, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you.